As I said, we begin a, a study of the entire book of Revelation this morning, not, not just the seven letters to the churches, which are the low-hanging, readily pickable fruit in chapters 2 and 3, but by God's grace, we'll make our way all the way through to the end of chapter 22. And this morning, we're just looking at the first three verses, and I'm going to try to give you an introduction to the book of Revelation. I was not sure exactly how we were going to do this as I began uh, studying um, a number of weeks ago now. I wasn't sure if I was going to try to preach it exhaustively or just pull out a, a, a few things here and there. But as I was reading through Joel Beakey's commentary on the book of Revelation, I started to have this feeling like, this is going to be okay. We can do this. And I, I hope this morning, as I give you this introductory message, I hope that the feeling that you have when, we, when you leave from here is, I want to hear more, and I'm, I'm confident and not intimidated uh, by this book, and I think that it's going to be a profitable study over the next several months. So that's sort of my aim this morning, is that you'll have that same kind of feeling of, I'm actually looking forward to this and not dreading it. So the first thing that we should note is that this book is not called Revelations, as many people popularly identify it as. You'll hear people say, turn to Revelations chapter 2 or Revelations chapter 8 or whatever. If you look at verse 1, it is called the revelation. The singular revelation. We should ask then, what is it a revelation of? At most, it is a revelation of two possible subjects, if I can put it that way. But if it is a revelation of two possible subjects, then I think it would be called the revelations. Right? So, if we are to understand the phrase, the revelation of Jesus Christ, in verse 1, to mean the revelation about Jesus Christ, then the book is a revelation of two things. Jesus Christ and things that must soon take place, as we see later in verse 1. But to my mind, if that's the way that we're to understand that phrase, then it should say the revelations of Jesus Christ and of the things that must soon take place. But that's not what we read. So there is another way to understand the phrase, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that way is to understand it as meaning the revelation from Jesus Christ. That revelation which comes from Jesus Christ. And if we understand the phrase, the revelation of Jesus Christ, to mean the revelation that comes from Jesus Christ, then there is only one subject of this particular revelation. Namely, things which must soon take place. So I prefer that interpretation of that phrase, the revelation of Jesus Christ. I think it means the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him, Jesus, to show his servants the things which must soon take place. I think this is one revelation of the things which must soon take place. However, I admit commentators and theologians are somewhat divided on that. Some think that this is... Uh, intended to indicate a revelation of Jesus Christ, a revelation about Jesus Christ also. As you will see this morning as I make my way through this, it's a moot point because Jesus Christ is very, very central to the book of Revelation. And there certainly is a revelation of Jesus Christ here in this book. And so whether or not the phrase in verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, is intended to mean the revelation about Jesus Christ or merely the revelation that comes from Jesus Christ, that's a bit of a moot point because Jesus Christ is front and center in this book of Revelation and there certainly is revelation of Him here. So, I will give you this morning an overview of the book to demonstrate how and in what manner Revelation reveals the things which must soon take place. Then we will see from our overview that Revelation 
certainly is also a revelation about Jesus Christ. Whether or not that's grammatically intended in verse 1 is a bit of a moot point. Because this book certainly does go on to reveal a great deal about Jesus Christ and His exalted glory. Finally, we'll finish with a brief exposition of verse 3. So here are our points for today. Gird up the loins of your mind. First, how Revelation reveals the things that must soon take place. Second, how Revelation reveals Jesus Christ. And then thirdly, a brief exposition of verse 3 before we wrap it all up. I'll tell you up front, the first point is going to take the bulk of our time. So don't stress if we're still in point one well more than well over halfway through this sermon this morning. All right? We do have a lot to cover, so as I say, gird up the loins of your mind and let us jump right in with how Revelation reveals things that must soon take place. Though interpretations of various parts of Revelation have resulted in at least dozens or probably hundreds of varying interpretations of this part or that part over the centuries, such that you may not find two commentaries that say exactly the same thing about every verse in Revelation. Though there have been widely varying interpretations of Revelation, it is nevertheless fair to say that broadly speaking, there are only five basic ways of understanding the book of Revelation. And I'll give you a brief overview of those five ways this morning. But if you want to dig into any of these in more detail, any of them but the last one, then you're going to have to buy a few good commentaries on Revelation and study them in greater detail yourself. Because as I go on to study the book of, or to preach through the book of Revelation in greater detail in the months ahead, I may allude to different ways of understanding this passage or that passage as we go. But for the most part, I'm just going to try to give you the correct interpretation and leave the erroneous alternatives out. After all, my job as your pastor is, as Jesus himself told Peter by the Sea of Tiberias, to feed the sheep. And so my goal is not so much to make sure that you could pass a seminary level exam on different types of interpretive possibilities of Revelation. But my job is to make sure that there's good nutritious food in the trough, so to speak, and as much as I'm able to pick out of what I put into the trough that which is less nutritious or perhaps even harmful to the flock of God. With that in mind, the first way of understanding Revelation is what is called the preterist view. Or there is a variation of the preterist view called partial preterism. And according to Joel Beakey, the word preterism is derived from the Latin word, forgive my Latin here, preteritum, preteritum, which means that which is past. All right? Now, full preterists, or some people call it hyperpreterism, believe that any interpretation of Revelation must be confined to the historic past rather than projected into the future. Partial preterism, or some people will just call that preterism, carries the same emphasis, but as you might expect from the name of it, partial preterism, they do allow for some futuristic fulfillment of the things described in Revelation. For an obvious example, the return of Christ and the creation of the new heavens and the new earth. Partial preterists will acknowledge that, yes, well, that is still future, but most of it has to do with that which is past. So that's preterism. All right. Now, some heavyweights, some serious heavyweights have held a partial preterist view. For example, Sam Waldron cites John Owen and B.B. Warfield as partial preterists. John Owen, of course, the famous Puritan and B.B. Warfield from Old Princeton in the uh, early days of that seminary when it was a bastion of orthodoxy. John Owen, Waldron says, on the basis of preterism, listen, listen to this, thought that the new heavens and new earth of 2 Peter 3 was the gospel age. B.B. Warfield suspected that 2 Thessalonians 2 was fulfilled in the current events taking place in and around the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. 
So this view sees most of the conflict and persecution happening in the book of Revelation as having already happened. And therefore allows, logically, if you grant that premise, therefore allows, logically, the triumph of the church in our present day. This view is very popular among those who are called post-millennials. And more on that when we come to Revelation 20 several months from now. But there are those who believe that there will basically be some sort of golden age, if you will, prior to Christ's return. And these are able to hold such a view logically because they accept the premise that most of what Revelation deals with in terms of conflict and the persecution of the church has already been fulfilled in the past. And so logically, if you grant that interpretive premise, then it's okay to believe that the church is going to basically gain ascendancy and that a gospel-centered biblical worldview will win the day in the here and now prior to Christ's return. They're able to believe logically that the persecution themes and the conflict themes of Revelation are not necessarily applicable to the church here and now. Obviously, sure, they might grant, well, yeah, we might be persecuted. We've got to be courageous and ready to face persecution. But it's also entirely possible that we are living in Um, a day in which the gospel will gain ascendancy to such an extent that the majority of people in our the context in which we find ourselves will adopt a biblical worldview and that it will actually be a real golden age in which we might not experience persecution this preterist view allows in other words for the triumph of the church in the here and now prior to Christ's return and a golden age of gospel-centered biblical worldviews prevailing in general society prior to Christ's return. Right? So that's the first interpretive possibility. Preterism or partial, partial preterism. What apparent strength of this position is that it takes seriously the statement in chapter 1 and verse 1 that what follows is a revelation of things that must soon take place. However, as Jesus himself says in Revelation chapter 22 and verse 20, I am coming soon. So, however we understand soon in Revelation chapter 1, it has to allow for the passage of at least 2,000 years. Given that Jesus has not come back yet, though Revelation 22 tells us that he is coming soon. So... The fact that preterists seem to take seriously the word soon in verse 1 doesn't really strengthen the position all that much in the final analysis. In terms of weaknesses, one major weakness of this position is that in the passages cited above by Owen and and Warfield, 2 Peter 3 and 2 Thessalonians 2 rightly interpreted, as well as passages like Matthew 24, do not actually allow us to put Revelation mostly in the past. There are markers in those passages which we have to tie to Christ's return. And so that means that we are tied, given those other passages, we are tied to an interpretation which necessarily requires much of the book of Revelation to be happening up to the time of Christ's return and not simply fulfilled in the distant past. Moreover, a right understanding of passages like the parable of the wheat and the weeds in Matthew chapter 13 will lead to the conclusion that the wheat and the weeds will grow up together until the time that they are separated and the wheat is put into the barn and the weeds are gathered out and burned. And what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12 That all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted is going to be applicable in every age until Christ returns. Considerations like this just do do not allow for us to dismiss the bulk of Revelation as already being passed or going to be passed prior to Christ's return. In other words, these considerations undermine preterism. Now, 
In contrast, which, with preterism, which is that which is in the past, what do you think is the next interpretive possibility that I'm going to give you? Futurism. Okay? In futurism, most of what is in Revelation is not in the past, but, you guessed it, in the future. As Beeky says, the futurist believes that the visions of Revelation 4-22 to refer to events that are still future but that they will transpire immediately prior to and along with Christ's coming at the end of history. Now, a great strength of this position is that there is a lot, for example, again, Christ's return and the new heavens and the new earth, which are, which are obviously still in the future to us. Owen's interpretation of the new heavens and new earth being the gospel age is clearly erroneous, with all due respect to a giant like Owen, because at that time, God wipes away every tear from our eyes. So if you're still crying, it's not the new heavens and the new earth. Right? So obviously, these things still are future to us. However, a weakness in the futurist position is that there is much in Revelation which is also obviously in the past. So for example, in chapter 12, there is a dragon trying to swallow up, as soon as he is born, a male child who will rule the nations with a rod of iron. Now, look, we might not all have seminary degrees in this room, but if there is a dragon trying to swallow up a child who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, as soon as he is born, what does that make you think of? Right? We don't have to be rocket scientists here to realize that Jesus is the prophesied son of David who will rule all the nations with the rod of iron from Psalm chapter 2. And we obviously know, even from King Herod's plot, which was diabolical or demonic, to destroy Jesus, that Joseph, or I mean, pardon me, that the wise men were warned to depart from Bethlehem by another way so that Herod wasn't able to destroy Jesus. Um, well, he laid in a manger, right? So we know that, well, that is referring to what is already past. And so there clearly are things that are obviously future in Revelation. There are also things which are clearly past. Another one being Satan thrown out of heaven, which is also in chapter 12 and so forth. And then there is much which is so obviously present. So, for example, the martyrs in chapter 6 asking God, how long... Before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell in the earth. They were told to rest a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Well, this is the story of the present. Many, many thousands, hundreds of thousands. I don't know, I don't even know how we would begin calculating the number of those who have been slain for the sake of the name are presently crying out to God, How long, O Lord, before you judge and avenge our blood? And yet they are to rest a little while longer until the decrees of God are finished. So the futurist approach is simply reductionistic and wants to say everything's future when Revelation plainly describes at times the now present and even the then present for those of the first century church who obviously experience things which are now past to us, but were present to them at that time. So, if Revelation is neither mostly past, as the preterist believes, or mostly future, as the futurist believes, then what options are left to us? There are three. And the first of these remaining three is the historicist view. The historicist sees Revelation 4 to 22 as basically unfolding chronologically the time between Christ's first advent and his second coming. So, if I can put it simplistically, we could say basically, you know, chapters 4, 5, 6 is the early church, chapters 19, 20, 21 is like Christ's return, and we're maybe like, I don't know, chapter 16. Or something. Right? Just to, just to simplify it so you understand. That's kind of the historicist view. That we're basically working from Christ's first advent 
to Christ's second advent, his first coming to his second coming, as we make our way from Revelation chapter 4 to chapter 22. And so there are things as we look backwards, which are behind us, and if and there are things, if we can figure out what chapter we're in, we can realize what's coming next as we make our way towards Christ's second coming. As Beeky says, the strength of this approach is that it embraces all of church history. Its weakness is that it too easily assumes that Revelation prophesies a linear movement through church history with no recapitulation of events seen from different views. Or, in other words, there are no replays of the same events from different camera angles in the historicist view. Which we will see there certainly are. Next, and naturally, we have the idealist view. The idealist says that Revelation speaks to all church history from Christ's ascension to his second coming. But it emphasizes the point that the things that we read in Revelation give us principles for understanding how church history is going to go down. And so there will be conflict between Christians and the unbelieving world between Christ's first coming and second coming. And Jesus will conquer in the end, etc., We see principles here. But according to the idealists, we shouldn't be too quick to say that any particular part of Revelation describes any particular historical event. And again, here is Beaky. The idealist scarcely wrestles with the problem of chronology in Revelation, preferring to see this book and its symbolism as a tract written for the persecuted Christians of any period. The symbolism is interpreted loosely in a very general way to give comfort and encouragement to persecuted Christians. The strength of this approach is its applicability to the church of all ages. Its weakness is that it is difficult to affirm this exegetically as on the description of revelation as a revelation of things which must soon take place. In other words, if I can put it in my own words, If there's nothing described in terms of events that will soon take place, then it's hard to describe the book of Revelation as things which will take place. Right? So it's too much idealism and not enough concrete specifics in the idealist. Okay, so there's the first four. Preterist, that which is past. Futurist, that which is future. Okay, well, neither of those is right because there's past, present, and future. So how about historicist? And we work our way from Christ's first coming to Christ's second coming as we plod along from chapter 4 to chapter 22. Well, that doesn't work because there are replays of the same events from different camera angles, so to speak. All right, well, then how about we throw out the idea that there is reference to any specific events, and how about we say that it's all just ideals and principles and concepts? That's the idealist view. So there's the four, right? Preterist, futurist, historicist, an idealist which detaches from wanting to say anything specifically about human history. All four of those, I believe, are ultimately incorrect, though there have been good, good men and still are who hold these various views. I think there are weaknesses to each of them, which I hope I've at least introduced you to. What then is the right way to understand Revelation? There is a fifth way which I believe and I hope I will demonstrate to you, builds on the strengths of each of the aforementioned views, but mitigates against their weaknesses. The fifth approach, which we will take in our study of Revelation in the months ahead, is what has been called the cyclical view, based on the root word cycle. Cyclical view, cyclical view. This view sees Revelation as covering... The same events from various perspectives, the way that if you watched a sporting event on TV, there might be various replays of the same athletic achievement from various angles. So in whatever sport, I mean the World Cup is on right now, the goalie makes a fantastic save and they show the replay from four different angles. You don't say, look at that, the goalie made five fantastic saves back to back. Because you recognize that's the same save seen from 
in the original camera angle plus four different camera angles on the replay. And so something did happen, but it didn't happen five times, right? You recognize that there is this cyclical replaying of the same event, in that case, in the example I gave you, five different times. According to the cyclical view, the book of Revelation is introduced in chapter 1 as, as, John, as John encounters the risen Jesus, which we'll cover over the next couple of weeks. Then there are letters from Jesus in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, each one to a real historic church. And yet, these real historic churches are also representative of real particular pitfalls that the church in every generation must guard against. Or, or in one case, they are a commendable example which the church in every age would do well to follow. And then, following that section, in, verse, or in chapter 4, we are given a glimpse of the heavenly throne room. And in chapter 5, Jesus reveals to His people the course that history will take for their encouragement, edification, warning, instruction, etc. However, Jesus doesn't reveal it only once, but multiple times from various camera angles, so to speak. Note takers, get ready. Because I'm about to give you a, a little brief little overview of the book of Revelation. Alright? Chapters 2 and 3, again, comprise letters to real first century historical churches who are also exemplary for the church in every generation in terms of pitfalls to guard against and ideals to pursue. Then, chapters 4 and 5 give us a vision of the heavenly throne room and of Jesus who is worthy to open the scroll which is the scroll of human history between His first advent and His second advent as we will see when we get to chapter 5. Now, num chapters 6 through chapter 8 and verse 5. So if you're a note taker, six, chapter 6 verse 1 to chapter 8 verse 5 gives us the first replay of human history. Ending with the seventh seal and quote... Peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now, chapter 8 and verse 6 begins all over again. We got another replay coming in, a different camera angle. Chapter 8, verse 6, through to the end of chapter 11, gives us the second replay, so to speak, of human history. Ending with the seventh trumpet and quote flashes of lightning rumblings peals of thunder and earthquake and heavy hail chapter 12 and verse 1 starts all over again and gives us a replay again this is the third camera angle or the third cycle chapter 12 and verse 1 to chapter 14 and verse 20 this time, the common refrain of flashes of lightning, rumbles, peals of thunder, and earthquake and heavy hail does not occur at the end of this section. But we do read of Jesus coming on the clouds and harvesting the earth and treading the winepress of God's wrath at the end of chapter 14, which is clearly the end of all things and therefore corresponds thematically to the cataclysmic finale of flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail, which punctuated the end of the first cycle and the end of the second cycle. Now the fourth cycle begins in chapter 15 and verse 1. And it goes to chapter 16 and verse 21, which ends with the seventh bowl. And back to the common refrain, flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake. 
and great hailstones. The fifth cycle begins at chapter 17 and verse 1, and it goes all the way to chapter 19 and verse 21. And again, this one does not end with the common refrain of flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and earthquake and heavy hail. But again, this one ends with Jesus returning and treading the winepress of God's wrath, which you will remember already happened at the end of chapter 14. So we're, again, we're talking about the end of all things here at the end of 19. Then chapter 20, chapters 20 through 22 give us the sixth cycle and again end not with the common refrain of flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake and heavy hail. But again, with Jesus returning and defeating his enemies, rendering the judgments of God upon them. And this time is added the wonderful emphasis on the blessedness of God's people following on the heels of Jesus' victory over his enemies. So just as if you're watching sports, the various replays are all intended to bring out more texture, more, more color, more perspective, add something valuable to what you just saw live. So whether the replay slows something down into slow motion, whether it goes to a different angle so that you can see better what the goalie was doing with his left hand or his right hand or whatever the case may be. Each of the replays is not exactly the same. It doesn't contain exactly the same information and emphases and so on and so forth. But each one brings out something unique as it gives you the same events from a different perspective. So I hope that you can see just from this brief overview, based on the common indicators of each cycle, always, which is always either flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail, or, if it's not that, it's Jesus returning and rendering recompense on his enemies. I hope you can see that the same thing happens six times. You come to the end and there is this great cataclysmic finale described either as rumblings, peals of thunder, etc., etc., or it's described as Jesus returning and treading the winepress of God's wrath and conquering his enemies. Furthermore, in support of the idea that Revelation is cyclical, right in the middle of the book of Revelation, chapter 12 begins, as I told you earlier, with a dragon about to devour a male child at the time of his birth, one who is to rule all the nations with the rod of iron. What historical event does that refer to? Something in the middle of history? Between Christ's first coming and second coming? Something, um, of course not that, it is the birth of Christ. And so, right in the middle of the book is something that is at the beginning of this time period between Christ's first coming and Christ's second. And we should note that it follows right on the heels of the blowing of the seventh trumpet at the end of chapter 11, at which time the kingdom of this world becomes the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. So if we understand the seventh trumpet to be the end of all things, which we do and we ought to, then we, re we realize that chapter 11 is wrapping up, and we see at the beginning of chapter 12, we're beginning again. So this cyclical view, I'm trying to give you enough, we'll, we'll revisit this as we go on, but I'm trying to give you enough detail to this cyclical view as we, as we em embark on an overview this morning, so that you can see that it's not just the convenient invention of theologians who wanted to be innovative and reject the other ways of understanding this book. Rather, there are exegetical indications, which is just a fancy way of saying there are markers right in the text itself, which guide us towards the idea that the revelation that we are receiving is cyclical and repeating, like replays from different camera angles when watching sports on TV. 
So this cyclical view gives us, allows us to see revelation of speaking both of the past and of the future. Unlike the preterist or futurist views which force us to choose one or the other. This cyclical view allows us to see events happening earlier in the book as happening chronologically after events later in the book and vice versa. As with the example I just gave you of the events surrounding Christ's birth happening in chapter 12, which is chronologically before, but in the context of Revelation after chapter 11, which is the end of all things. So, this helps us see the, the superiority of the cyclical view over the historical view. The cyclical view also allows us the possibility of being appropriately specific with respect to events in world history. Unlike the idealist, which, or who box entirely at that very enterprise. And yet, because the cyclical view recognizes that some Different symbols represent the same things, the same events. It also protects us and preserves us from being overly specific and overly zealous. Trying to press meaning into each and every detail of each and every symbol. Thus preserving the strength of the idealist approach in making the book relevant for every generation. And it guards us against the often silly and nonsensical charts and diagrams and calculations of those who are convinced that Revelation is basically an encoded newspaper from a future time, given in advance to God's people and accessible only to those who have Google and CNN and would have been meaningless to every prior generation. So according to the cyclical approach, we will see the contours of human history between Christ's first coming and his second coming. It's going to be specific enough to be helpful and encouraging, and yet it's going to be broad enough to be meaningful and intelligible, both to the, the simpleton uh, who sits in the church week by week without much great study it's going to be accessible to the church in every generation and not just our modern age with all the technological advancements we have and our ability to follow world news closely it's going to make it accessible to God's people for their edification and encouragement which is what we would expect scripture to do right there's the heavy lifting done breathe a sigh of relief we're through point one and as I told you, points two and three are not going to be as long. So we're past, well past the halfway point. Alright? Our second point is this. How Revelation reveals Jesus Christ. Well, chapter one reveals, we didn't read it, but chapter one reveals Jesus as Him who loves us. And has freed us from our sins by His blood. Chapter one and verse five. This is where it all begins. And this is the manner in which we are most accustomed to thinking of Jesus, isn't it? As Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood. However, Jesus is not merely like some hero who stepped in front of a moving train to push us out of its path and then died Himself. Jesus is like that, but Jesus is not merely like that. If we were to push that metaphor a little bit further... Imagine once the train is passed and you think you're going to just see a mess of what was formerly a man mangled on the tracks. But lo and behold, the man who pushed you out of the way of the train stands up stronger and more powerful than ever before. This is closer to what happened with Jesus and his work on the cross. Revelation portrays Jesus not merely as him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, but also in the very same verse, chapter 1 and verse 5, as the ruler of the kings of the earth. 
<laughs> and in the same chapter, <laughs> as one whom the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow, and so forth. Reminiscent of the imagery used in Daniel chapter 7 of the Ancient of Days, God Himself. In chapters 2 and 3, He is the resurrected Lord of the church. And as I mentioned already in chapter 5, Jesus is in the heavenly throne room as the one who is worthy to open the scroll which is the scroll of human history, indicating to us that He is not just the Lord of the church, but the Lord of human history, setting in motion and accomplishing the decrees of God in time and space, so that everything written in the scroll comes to pass. He is a Lamb. Yes, He is. In fact, in Revelation, we hear over and over and over of the Lamb. The Lamb, the Lamb, the Lamb. And yet, He is also a lion. And Revelation makes it plain that the lion shall conquer. This is an unmistakable emphasis of Revelation. No one defeats Jesus. No one defeats Jesus' people. They go to war with us. They make war against us. But we will not be overcome because Jesus is the Lord of the church. Jesus loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood and Jesus is a lion. Jesus treads the winepress of the fury of His wrath and overcomes His enemies on our behalf. So we, have, we, we are called to go to war. <coughs> We're given a uniform. We're told to suit up. We're told to expect a battle and a war which will rage until the seventh trumpet sounds, until Jesus comes back. But we are told in no uncertain terms in Revelation that because Jesus is not only a lamb, but also a lion, Jesus wins. The book of Revelation tells us that the scroll contains a cross for Jesus' people. But it also contains a crown. And at the end of all things, we who have trusted in Christ Jesus will be standing. And the enemies of Christ Jesus will have fallen. I trust over the next several months that we will come to see a glorious picture of Christ Jesus. Not only as the crucified Messiah, but as the risen and exalted one who shall reign forever and ever with and for His people. And that this will encourage us not to lose heart in the midst of the battle now. Jesus pushed us out of the way of the train. But when the train passed, Jesus stood up stronger and more powerful than before. And that is a wondrous thing to think about to consider, to contemplate. That's our second point of three. I told you our points would be quicker than the first one. How Revelation reveals Jesus. The third of three points is this. A brief exposition of chapter 1 and verse 3, which says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. With respect to a blessing for reading it aloud, we should not think of it as if Revelation is an incantation which magically improves the lives of anyone who reads the magic spell from the magic book. It's another way to think about the blessing attached to reading it aloud. Now, it means that God is pleased when people share the message of Revelation with others and smiles upon that enterprise. As Beaky notes, in the days when Revelation was written, many in the church could not read. And one of the duties of the minister of the Word was to give attendance to reading, 1 Timothy 4.13. That is, the reading and exposition of Holy Scripture, so that those who could not read could at least hear it read and expounded for their edification. God is pleased then when Revelation is not neglected, put on the shelf as 
too hard, too weird to, to bring into the church, to read aloud. But when it is read aloud, God smiles upon that enterprise. When we look at this book and, and endeavor to help others hear and understand the message of this book, God smiles upon that enterprise. God is pleased when God's word, all of it, all 66 books, including Revelation, are read and preached. And when people listen and really hear and internalize its message. God is pleased when we undertake the study of this challenging book rather than ignore it out of fear or laziness. Repent, be he says, of any past neglect of this part of Scripture. Embrace Revelation as a book God wants you to read and understand. That's what the blessing for reading and hearing means in verse 3. But verse 3 also says, Blessed are those who keep what is written in it. How do we keep a book which has very few imperatives, very few commands, other than perhaps in the letters to the churches in chapters 2 and 3? After all, once we reach chapter 4, Revelation hardly ever tells us to do anything or to stop doing anything. So how do we keep this book? Well, if the police said, those who pass this barrier shall be arrested, we would not miss the point, would we? Though the police did not say it in explicit terms, thou shalt not pass this barrier. We get the message loud and clear. There is an obvious implied imperative. Those who pass this barrier shall be arrested. Means, thou shalt not pass this barrier. So it is with the book of Revelation. There are implied imperatives throughout. When the book of Revelation speaks, for example, of the various woes that attend the final trumpets in Revelation chapter 9, and then says, quote, The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshipping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. When the book of Revelation speaks, for example, like that, of the various woes that attend the final trumpets in Revelation 9, and then says that, we can understand the implied imperative. Repent! Though the passage does not explicitly say you ought to repent, this is the obvious implied imperative. <coughs> so as we make our way through the book of Revelation in the coming months, I will endeavor to point out to you as we go the implied imperatives. Give some serious thought to the study of this book and continually ask yourself, if what Revelation says is true, and it is, how then ought I to live in view of what Revelation tells me? This book is for our understanding, including our understanding of the course of human history. But it's not merely for our understanding. It is intended to give us a glorious picture of Christ in order that our confidence in Him may increase and our affection for Him would grow. And it is intended by telling us about things which must soon take place and Christ's part in it all. It is intended to shape and form the way we live that we would see if we, were, if we are outside of Christ Jesus, the absolute urgency of being made right with God. Because one day, the battle lines which are drawn already and have been drawn will be finalized and impermeable. And you will not be able to cross over to the other team, so to speak. And God will tread the winepress, Jesus will tread the winepress of His wrath and fury upon those who line up against Him. You are meant to see 
The folly then of continuing outside of Christ Jesus and being in war against the Lamb and against the saints. You are meant to see the necessity, the urgency of being numbered among Christ's people. And the great blessedness therein of being numbered among Christ's people. In spite of the opposition and persecution and weariness that we experience from living in Babylon. Nevertheless, God's people are blessed to belong to the Lamb. Because He is also a lion. And Jesus wins. We are meant to see the folly, if we belong to Christ Jesus, of dabbling around with the world's baubles and trinkets, being enamored with the great prostitute who rides upon the beast, as if we had anything to do with her and if she could bless us and be advantageous to us in any way. We are meant to say no. I see things clearly for what they are and I'm on a different team now. We're meant to release our hold on that which is opposed to Jesus, that which is repugnant to Jesus. And we are meant to consider the glorious things which are spoken of Zion, the city of our God. We're meant to recite the words of that song that we sang earlier. Fading, fading, are the worldlings pleasures and to recognize the great blessedness of letting go of that of all of these shiny things which are but fishing lures dangling in front of a fish looking good but just harmful to us in the long run we are meant to see the things that will take place to see Christ pardon them, and then to live accordingly. Revelation is meant to shape our moral lives. We are meant not only to, to, to hear it read aloud, so to speak, and to read it aloud, but we are meant also to keep it, to conform to the implied imperatives of Revelation. Oh God, help us with this endeavor as we embark on this enterprise over the next several months, we pray. By your Spirit, move powerfully among us. In Jesus' name, amen.